0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Today, I am very excited to bring you our second episode with Grace Kim James. Grace is the head of marketing at Atlantic Records, representing artists such as, are you ready? Missy Elliott, Lizzo, and FKA Twigs. Grace is a fellow Korean American, and she considers herself not first or second generation, but generation 1.5. We get into so many topics pertaining to what it means to be Asian in America, dissecting the difference between being Korean American and American Korean, sharing experiences of discrimination, and dismantling the model minority myth. We go there with the uncomfortable but urgent matter of racism against Asians, with an interesting discussion on the place of race in the music world. Ultimately, this episode is an homage to our immigrant parents, whose sacrifices and strength we admittedly took for granted when we were growing up, as well as to our Korean heritage, which is finally finding a place in pop culture by way of K-pop, kimchi, and conversations like ours. I think also that you'll love listening to the lyrical cadence of her voice. It's no wonder such huge musicians want to work with her. Please enjoy this inspiring, no holds barred conversation with Grace Kim James. All right, I have another podcast episode for you today and I'm really excited to introduce Grace Kim James. She's in the, she's a, she's head of marketing at Atlantic Records. Hi Grace. Hi Leah, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So happy that you're here and have this conversation with you. And there's so many things that I wanna talk about and ask you about, um, but let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Fairfax, Virginia. I moved there
1: when I was three. I immigrated when I was three. My parents had um, given birth to me in South Korea, and then after three years, you know, they left me in Korea for three years. I immigrated here at three. Oh,
0: they you they went before. They came yes, here before? Oh, wow. they came here before to get
1: settled. Okay. Do I think that they thought it was going to be that long? Three years right after they had yeah. a newborn and their first kid, probably not. Oh man, but. I didn't know the difference. Right. Um, Who were you with? Grandparents? My grandparents. And one of my, I don't want to say favorite stories to tell, but one of the stories that my grandparents shared with me and my family shared with me at that time was when my grandparents finally brought me over. They they were like, go, that's your mom and dad. Like, go... Go say hi to them. And at three, I'm running to these two people. I'm like, Mom, Dad. And I look at them, and I turned around, running back to my (sighs) grandparents, like, I don't know these people. Yes. And so I don't remember that. Right. But that is a story that they've told me that I... So totally now remember, I'm like man, I can't imagine how my parents yeah. felt at the time. But whatever, that's not what you asked me. You no, asked me no, right? that's very no no, that's <laughs> totally
0: interesting. And do you, did they talk about when they bring it up again? Are they saying like? Do they say it like laughingly or like, no. you're like, you broke our hearts or like, no, no, just
1: like this happened. I just, you know, I think, and we'll probably get more into this in our chat today. We didn't talk about that very much and we don't talk about the hardships mm-hmm. as much. And I think if anything, my parents are very good about protecting my brother and myself from any sorts of hardships or memories of hardships sure. and they did a really great job of just insulating us yeah and just keeping us safe as children so that we could be children
0: so your brother is younger than you yes um he was born here in the states yes okay why did they pick virginia I actually, you know, you're asking
1: a lot of questions that I should start asking (laughs) my parents at this age. Yeah, you might not know because they don't tell you about stuff, right? It's it's a very Korean thing um, to not talk about a lot of these things. I think as a culture, we're very like, you know, if you don't talk about it, it'll go away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think one, from a geographical standpoint, it's near dc which is the capital of this country and so when you look at it from like a nationwide standpoint of course you want to be near the capital i think the other thing is um there were a couple people that they knew in the area who had already come over who had already established their lives and so i think the little bit of community that they had made them feel better yeah um, starting a new life and chapter and then now fast forward 40 years later Fairfax, Virginia, and Northern Virginia and the DMV area, DC, Maryland, Virginia, just has a large Asian American population. Right. So um, all those things combined.
0: Yeah. My, my parents went to, well, I was born in the States. So we were talking about this on the, on our call, weren't we about like what generation we are when, and I think there's something really interesting with, I know Korean Americans, I don't know if it applies to other immigrant families, but you, I was saying, I asked if you were second generation like I am since I was born in the States, and you said that you are actually 1.5. Yeah. 1.5, right? Um And, yeah. Did you grow up knowing that term, though, or is it yes. something? Oh, you did. I did grow up knowing that term because um, when we first
1: moved here or when I first moved here my brother and I were little, there weren't that many Korean Americans. And then probably in the 90s, mm-hmm. You started to see more and more. And then by the early 2000s, the late 90s, we had our community. And that community was usually centered around church. Right. And at that time, I was probably in middle school, high school, um, and then other kids from Korea were immigrating more and more during those days. And so you had a blend of kids who are more American yes. and then kids who had just, you know, immigrated here. Right. And that's where the term fresh off the boat comes from. Right. And so while I don't love that term now, I, you know, it references a time
0: where yeah, immigrants were coming and drove. Yeah. The idea uh, of like Are you a fobby Asian or are you like an Americanized Asian? So the fresh off the boat term, it translates
1: to FOB, right? And so that's where the term fobby comes from. Like, are you fobby? And so when you are intermingling with, you know, an American Korean or a Korean American like myself, and then these, you know, newly immigrated kids who are the same age, even at a young age, you know, we're different. Yeah. Even though we're the same race, the same ethnicity, Um, even the same age, we are different.
0: Yeah. And how did you take that different different feeling? Like, did you feel like it was better to be, you know, one versus the other? There wasn't a, hey, this is better. It was just
1: more of a, even at that age and even at a young age, you knew that there was a difference between this person and that Mm -hmm. person, depending on where they were in their immigration slash assimilation mm, journey yeah. and story. Yeah. And I've never probably said it in those words. I think more than anything, you are just really sensitive to what the other person is going through. And those things may be, hey, leaving your country at three is very different than leaving your country at 14, 15, 16, yeah. when you've already experienced a lot of things. Yeah, So I think at that time I was just more aware of, hey, what are the challenges that that person may be experiencing having immigrated to the uh, to the U.S. at a different time, different age, et cetera, but also um, what can they give me in my cultural experience growing up as a Korean in the United States? Um, but also those Friends who had just immigrated again later in their teen years are also who helped me learn more about my culture. Yeah. And it's what drove me to find community in um, other like Asian kids and other uh, Korean-Americans, especially in the church. But also it helped me practice the language, speaking hmm. Korean. It drove an interest in watching K-dramas before K-dramas were oh, yeah. so mainstream as yeah, they are now. Yeah, now they're just on Netflix
0: and yes. you're like, what? I used to have to go with my parents to rent the video, the VHS oh, videotape. Yes. You know, I had an interest
1: in Korean music uh, way before K-pop really broke onto the yeah. scene. So I am grateful for that time in that community that I had. Yeah. Um,
0: Did you get to go to Korea on vacations or visits and stuff growing up? I've only been growing up, I'm gonna say growing up until like my
1: 18th or even 20, early 20s. Um, I had only gone to Korea probably three times, wow. maybe four, um, but I can only remember three right yeah. now. Did
0: all your family immigrate over? Like did your grandparents follow or no? So you had a lot of relatives still back there. Yes. I
1: didn't have immediate family here for a very long time. All of my relatives, my grandparents who raised me, my maternal grandparents, my extended family, my aunts, uncles, and cousins all stayed in Korea. Um, And so we only went back again in my 20-something years at that time had only been back three to four times. Mm. Because one, it's extremely expensive to fly from DC to Seoul, South yeah. Korea. It's about a 16, 17 hour so flight far, I Yeah,
0: I grew up in California and like it was a no, it's much easier from there, which I never understood. I'm like, which way are they flying? That makes it. But yeah, from the east from here it's harder. It's definitely harder. but yeah. also it, you have to save up all this money.
1: Um, and then from a logistical standpoint, you don't, you don't really go until you are able to spend like a month there. Right. You don't
0: just go for like a long,
1: (laughs) it's not a, Hey, I'm going to, you know, Napa for the weekend. Yeah, Yeah, It is a, Hey, if I'm going to spend X amount of money to go halfway around the world, I'm going to spend two, maybe four weeks there to sometimes the whole summer. Yeah. And so that requires a lot of, planning, financial support, etc. Yeah. And as an adult, a coach, as an adult now, I'm like a coach ticket to Korea is probably what, like 2000 2000 I think, yeah. Yeah, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah.
0: but the whole taking a whole family, and that's probably, ch- is it cheaper? I feel like it's probably cheaper now than it was then. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but I also know we didn't come from money, yeah. and so to your point, four tickets, yeah. uh, for your family is a lot of money. And then you, you're probably having to, the, your parents are having to take time off work and that extended period is probably not paid. It's just not that feasible. Is it to, um, do how do you think that for your parents that was, I mean, maybe you just have to guess cause they probably didn't share with you, but could you see that it was difficult for them or were they more of the, like, let's all assimilate, let's all get Americanized, um, you know, do 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 you feel like they felt kind of disconnected because they had their original identity in one place they couldn't really go back? They're raising children in a totally different way. Like, do you think there's anything that impacted them? My parents never pushed us to assimilate. Mm. If
1: anything, it was probably assumed we would easily assimilate because we spent our days at school, right? And so at school we were forced to play with other kids of different cultures learn the language learning english
0: right and oh yeah so you probably would have spoken only korean when you first were yeah. when you first moved here my brother didn't have this problem right. but i
1: very much struggled learning english mm-hmm. as a second yeah, language yeah. because i spoke korean at home and you know, going to preschool and kindergarten and even first and second grade, there was a point in first and second grade where my teachers, I was still in ESL at that time. Oh wow. My teachers had said to my mom and dad, uh, probably my mom, because she was the one who went to the parent teacher conferences was you have to let her watch television (laughs) (laughs) and you know, telling telling an Asian parent uh, you have to let your watch your kid watch television is blasphemy but it was such a pay she needs to be exposed to english outside of the few hours that she's at school yeah. because she's going to struggle
0: yeah also there's something to watching tv where you're just an observer right you can just like you could be like how is that person saying this what is the emotion behind this type of communication. Whereas when you're in school, you're also thinking about yourself mm-hmm. and like how you're gonna respond in this moment. Like you know, so it yes, a lot of a lot of people say they learn from watching Friends or back then watching did you did you watch Full House or what did you do you remember what you may have watched? I mean by the time I watched Full House and all those things
1: and the things I remember, I I spoke English. Oh yeah, because that came out late in more like nineties. I remember I very vaguely remember struggling to say certain words. Mm. The difference between worm
0: oh my god i was thinking that <laughs> i just have chills i was like she's good she's not gonna say worm that was my word worm and warm i very oh my god warm. i swear to god same here <laughs> i still have to like really try when i say worm because it wants to come out like warm, warm. So, warm and warm, and then ye- they were
1: year and ear I had a, I had trouble with, so yeah. those are the two I remember. I don't know what the, the tipping point was, but then it was just by the time second grade and third grade came around, yep. um, it was fine. My brother didn't have that problem. My brother easily learned it quickly because he was born here. Does he also speak Korean? No, and that's the difference. Yeah. I, I kept the Korean lessons. I, because I think one, my grandparents forced that on me, but two, uh, I think they were more, um, intentional about actually, that's not true. I'm not going to say they're more intentional. They forced us to go to Korean school on Saturdays, (laughs) both of us, but, I had had several years of living in Korea, and I think being in that environment made yeah. me yeah. more in tune with it, whereas my brother just immediately picked up English. Yeah, yeah
0: we, I have really similar situation. I was born here, but I did not really learn English until school. Mm-hmm. My mom only spoke, my parents only spoke Korean to me, and I think their rationale was like, she's going to learn English in school anyway, mm-hmm. but my brother's four years younger, and he grew up like not really understanding as much Korean, like he knew, he knew a little bit. I think because it's those early years, as a baby, you actually take in so much mm-hmm. and to have access to a different language that like really cements in your brain. And so that's like such a gift actually, even, even though I actually remember being so freaked out in preschool and still kindergarten, I didn't feel that confident speaking English. I went by my Korean name, too, which is which Soojin, is and, like, I just felt so outsider, and I really didn't, like, I felt really uncomfortable about that. But now, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I almost, my, my like, pronunciation, because Korean is really hard for a foreigner or non-native speaker to get the pronunciation right. Do you agree? There's, like, the subtleties of, like, like the double consonant sounds. I don't know. I think... I think it's
1: easy to learn, in my opinion, because it's very um mathematical, Sure, in it's a just way. like phonetic. it's language. very phonetic. Yeah, yeah, it's very phonetic and um
0: It's just what it is. Yeah. As opposed to English, we have these. Oh my God. English makes no sense. It's like the most irregular language. We have random grammatical
1: rules that's like, hey, this is the exception. That's why I think Koreans have a hard time learning English sometimes. Yeah, Yeah. But speaking of like, just going back to your question of just, did they make an effort to assimilate us? I think if anything, it was the opposite where it was like, it was just a natural hey, we're assimilating because we're going to school and this is what we're doing. We were latchkey kids. And so it's really on us to figure out our homework, uh, make friends, uh, have socialization, et cetera. It is quite a privilege to um, have parents who have the time to be at home with you to teach you about one culture or the next. And so when your parents are working six to seven days a week, 12 hours a day, um, we were really left to our own accord to figure it out. And so when I hear as an adult even, um, well, this person's been in this country, like they should learn this language, it, it really angers me because it takes, it's not just about effort. It is, there's privilege to having time. There's privilege to having the ability to take carve out however many hours a day, or even a day, having a day off, having two days off, Saturday and Sundays, to devote to learning a language is, it's a privilege. Or having the ability to come home after work yeah, if you have a nine to five, cool. You can maybe carve out an hour after a corporate America job. But when you are working these blue collar jobs for hours and hours and hours and you come home and then your responsibility is to feed the kids and help them with their homework, bathe them, et cetera, et cetera. And then by that time, it's time for you to go to bed. People just don't have the resources nor the time um, Mm -hmm. to dedicate into learning the language, even though they have the desire Yeah, and they're, The other thing is, oh, you can you have read books and listen to tapes on the way to work. Yeah, sure, okay. Yeah, you you learn Spanish. Yeah, that way, please. Yeah, Um, maybe you'll (laughs) learn a couple words here and there, and that's exactly how a lot of Asian Americans and other non English speakers figure out how to say a couple things and communicate right? Yeah, but that's why it's not perfect because they don't have the opportunity to go to a, sc- a night school or have a tutor etc
0: yeah, because the reality of an immigrant's day to day life when you're coming into a brand new country with whatever dollars that you might have in your pocket and you're starting from total scratch and just learning to navigate I think about my parents they got married and then they immediately had their honeymoon in Jeju-do and then they immediately moved to Chicago and um because my dad was got a job teaching at a school and they had like a few hundred dollars and they didn't know anything and just even figuring out where am I going to get milk you know just like the basic things it takes a lot of energy to figure it out even if you move to a new neighborhood let alone a new country where it's like not the language or culture that you grew up in I I definitely took that for granted like what our parents did and had to overcome. Yeah, And it's only as I'm getting older but I heard this thing recently where somebody was like if you hear someone speaking English with an accent Mm -hmm. you shouldn't make fun of them or think less of them. You should think more of them because that means they know Multiple languages, <laughs> you know, and like, and that was something for me growing up uh, that I hated having to witness on behalf of my parents because they have accented English and the way um, other non-Asian, really Americans, would treat them. Mm-hmm. Did you witness that? Did you see much of that, or was you hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent? And there's something
1: about the Asian accent in particular. That is criticized more than any other accent. Why do you think that is? Just racism. There's no other explanation. (laughs) It is, um, if you have a British accent or a French accent, you are intelligent or it's sexy or it's so romantic. But if you have broken English and you have an Asian accent or you have a, a Spanish, you know, you mix your English with Spanish, you're uneducated. Yeah. And it's, it's racist, it's classist. Yeah. And um, there's no other explanation for yeah. that. Yeah, I've
0: never thought about it so specifically in those terms. But yeah, you would never hear somebody with the French accent speaking English like I can just conjure it up the moment like you meet somebody who speaks English with the French accent with someone who speaks with a Korean accent and immediately you fill in the blanks in different ways about like how you're how you view that person like what you know like what you kind of imagine their life or background to be I think part of it is because the languages are so tonal um because
1: not so much Korean but Chinese um, And even a little bit of Japanese, I would say, and I'm not the expert in either of those languages, but especially um, Mandarin Cantonese, the way that you say those words um, makes a difference because it's not like "cat." Like we can say "cat," cat, cat,
0: cat, 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 cat. cat. and it's all "cat."
1: (laughs) And in Chinese, it's not all the same. And so if anything, they have a much more advanced and sophisticated language. But there's something about the tonality of these Asian languages that make people think that it's funny for some reason. Yeah, And no one makes fun of French accents. No one makes fun of even German accents or uh, uh, even actually a little bit of Spanish accents, right? They probably make fun of um, other things. But when it comes to Asian languages,
0: it's just hilarious for some people. I think Spanish now, um, it's sort of non-native speakers who learn Spanish. They're quite proud of it. You know, it's just like, I'm fluent in Spanish. I think I read something recently, like somebody's, is it Ben Affleck? someone was on a talk show and it came out that he's fluent in Spanish and everyone's like, I had no idea he could do that. And it's sort of this like lauded thing. Um, whereas growing up, did you get, I got like the ching chong, ching chong thing. Did you get that too? Oh yeah. God, it's just like, this also is like, so by the way, by the way, it still happens as an adult. Oh my God. I know (laughs) that's true. I get like cat called sometimes and people will be like, we like Ni hao Ma, and I'm always like, I'm not Chinese, you know. Like, um, actually, I don't say it anymore now because I'm scared to, it, it, I don't know, I would just like ignore people. But there is nothing, I, by the
1: way, I share that experience, and I think a lot of Asian women in particular feel that way or or have had some sort of experience where they've had to yell at someone, I'm not Chinese because <laughs> yeah. someone has said to us Ni Hao Ma or Konnichiwa. Yeah, it is one. Um, cat calling in general is not okay. Right. Um, and so that's the first part. So there's like the sexual assault part of it. Um, then the second part is you're assuming that we're all the same. Yeah. And so that is why we take offense to it. And then third, it's never in an attractive way. It's never said in an attractive way. It is also said in such a way that is in, in, again, the, The comedy of it of let me uh let me speak your language and let me try to catcall you yeah Um, and because you're the authentic not authentic the exotic yeah you know sexual one but anyway i digress
0: no i had this thing happen just in brooklyn um last year i was walking around with my friend who's white and um i was pushing my daughter we were just walking by and this like he was clearly unhinged this man um But as we like pass each other and right at that moment, he says to my friend, stay away from that Korean. And um, it was like very jarring, you know, whatever. He's crazy. But my my immediate response was, oh, my God, he got my race right. Mm. (laughs) I was legitimately like everyone always thinks I'm Chinese when they shout at me on the street or probably generally speaking. And my friend was like so stunned that it had happened at all in that way. Cause it wasn't like a cat call. It was like a violent kind of like hostile moment. Then she just couldn't get over how I was kind of impressed <laughs> that he had gotten, I would have been right. He had gotten the Korean, right. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, how just, how much have we been, exposed to this or having to deal with this, that like, that's my instinctive response. But so I was going to say like going back to like in childhood being made fun of for language or what we look like, whatever. I mean, I didn't have that many Asian people around me growing up until college. There were, of course there were some, but we were like sprinkled, you know, it wasn't that many, but if I would get ching chonged at, I took that in, I internalized that as my shame, you know, and I didn't, it didn't occur to me because I was a child to realize that, no, that's on that person, you know? And so I never talked about it. I was like, I was already so aware that I looked different, felt different. And I didn't want to present that experience to further make me feel different. Um, and so it's only as I've gotten older, like just being, just asking you that question and you're like, of course that happened. That I'm like, Oh man, that wasn't personal to me. I know it's not about me. And there's this like, when you, when we share the experience, we can, we have, there's that solidarity. Did you ever respond in a way that in like a strong way to a kid that may have said that to you or also with sometimes multiple kids? Which is like that ganging up feeling and like, ugh, I could never, you know, like, do you remember how you may have reacted? I, I think in the catcalling situations or whatnot, it was an easy
1: reaction to say, I'm not Chinese <laughs> right. or, when you're older, though, yes, right? or I'm not Japanese. Yeah. Um, but as a child, as a child, I don't think anyone ever did the ching chong thing um, out to me. Mm. I I. I think the things that were more triggering or upsetting for me as a kid were where, um, when kids would pull their the eyes, eyes yeah. yes, they would pull their eyes to the side to make them slanted. Yeah. Um, and, and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. We, we're in a podcast and everyone knows what I'm talking yeah. about. I think that was more upsetting for me. Yeah. Um the language thing I even as a kid was I knew it was ignorance. Right. And I knew it came from a place of they all think we look the frickin' same. Yeah. And China's the biggest Asian country. So of course these dodo heads yeah. assume <laughs> we're all from the same country. People didn't know Korea yeah, like, when I was any- growing up. Yeah. If anything, I just think you are uneducated and right. uh just assume we're all from the biggest place. Um so I think the language saying the ching chong thing was whatever. It was just stupid, even if it hurt. Um, it was more the the slanted eye mm. gesture. I think that was upsetting to me because that was, to me, a very clear, like, you are different. Yeah. You are different. And not only are you different, but you look different. Yeah. And everyone else has the same eyes except you guys. Yeah,
0: And, like, it's fact. Mm-hmm. That you couldn't, are you rationalize out of because you you have eyes and you can see your eyes, you can see their eyes. And it was definitely a major feature that makes us look different.
1: I remember after graduating high school, my parents and my friends' parents, like they sent us on like a little girls' trip to Cancun, Mexico. I do not know why they agreed to that. Um, <laughs> just the kid, just just, just the kids. kids. Wow. We were eighteen and nineteen, and wow. they, they allowed must us have been to go. Fun. It was so fun. But there was one night was at a club at eighteen years old. Again, I do not know why my parents allowed us to go. Did they know the drinking age in Mexico is eighteen? I don't think they knew, but I think they were more like, "Hey, they want to go somewhere. They're eighteen and nineteen. They That's should really go." Nice, and they trusted us. Yeah. And we were very responsible and we didn't drink at that age, but I remember going to a club one night and I actually thought of this the other day. And I remember my friends and I were dancing. Um, and one of my girlfriends, you know, the hot girl of the group was dancing with one of these guys and I caught at the side of my eye. He was dancing with her where her backside was up on his front side and he turned to his buddies and you know, the guys are looking at him like, oh, who are you dancing with? And he pulled his no. eyes. He pulled his eyes um, to the side and I caught that.
0: Oh my god.
1: Of like, oh look at me, I got I got the right the Asian one, right? Yeah. I don't think he would have said it that way. But um, it's clearly stayed with me. And I remember yeah. at that moment, I didn't say anything to my friend, still have never said anything to my friend, because it was such a reminder of like, you piece of Shit. Sorry if I'm not allowed to curse. I think you're allowed to curse. (laughs) I don't, I think Um, you make your own rules. But the reason I bring that up is I never said anything. Yeah. And I think growing up, I didn't say a lot of things. Yeah. And as a culture, we are very, we're we're taught to keep our head down, keep it moving, to not say anything, to not stir the pot. And so as a people, we are very, uh, not the word isn't passive. It's a, we are, we're taught and we grow up being taught to just brush things under the rug. Like Mm -hmm. it's not bad, right? Our people have starved, been killed and beaten and pillaged and raped. Um, so a little microaggression here and there isn't so bad. Yeah. And because of that, I think I grew up for a very long time, not saying anything because it was just how we dealt and you just keep it moving. And so I think what's happening a lot right now, in the, especially in these last few years, when we're having these kinds of conversations, you are unpacking how much you've had to swallow yeah. all these years and centuries um, as a as as a people. And so I think that's why conversations like these are incredibly important because. You need to talk about it, and you need to confront issues, and you need to stand up for yourself. And it's not easy. It's a muscle that you have to practice and use.
0: Do you think, though, before the last few years that these conversations would have happened as easily? I don't think so, Right, and I don't know why.
1: Um, I think, one, just trauma and um, chaos and, you know, just... Bad things bring people together. Yeah. And that's what makes people bond. But I think it was also it's the age of social media, the same way that social media is what highlighted the injustices that were being done to not just young black men, but just black people yeah. all around the country. And it was the first time that America saw like this is what happens. Yeah. And it happens quite a lot. Yeah. And it's been happening. And I think it's the same for us Asians, where it was the first time where people could see on a national and global scale, like what happens to us and what has been happening to us. Yeah. And the internet and social media is what has connected us all together to band together. Whereas, like you said, growing up in Chicago, growing up in the DC area for me, very big metropolitan areas, but we didn't have the internet growing up right. to be able to band together and to see
0: how many of us there were that experienced these things. Maybe not individually, but at least like collectively within our families, but have bought into the, like the whole model minority myth. And I know that I just kind of believed that like, all right, we're going to get m- made fun of, we're going to be ridiculed, whatever, but ha ha, we're going to like get good jobs and make the money and be able to buy our homes. And we win that way, even though we don't, we're actually not fairly treated. I sort of, and I didn't, you know, as a young person, I didn't think of it in those terms, but as I look back and try to just make sense of like, we're only now speaking up as a, as a group, you know, I just have to think that that myth that we were sold, as being like, be the good minority, right? Like be the one that doesn't make as much noise, then you get to be successful in your own way. Even though white supremacy is always gonna keep you down, um, we'll let you have a bit more than we do to black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and I don't know if it's from our parents also having bought into that, like just work hard, get a place in you know this American dream. And because I think, immigrant or not, Asian cultures aren't really into like deep conversations about like psyche and, you know, trauma and all that stuff, because there has been so much that it just is like, mm-hmm. we can't handle it. I mean, my parents were born during the Korean war mm-hmm. were yours, Like my were, dad. So they were, cause right the after. war was from like 1950 to 53 that mm-hmm. my parents were born in 1950 and 52. Your parents are a bit older than mine. They, they were
1: right after. Yeah. And but that's still like, it's you're still blown, right? into the trauma mm-hmm. of that. And like, yeah. And so growing up, I didn't understand the history, nor did they really explain it to me. They, they explained it to me in a sense of like, when I was your age, I went to school with no shoes in the snow right. or every kid's parents told them that lie. Yeah. Right. And that's <laughs> in our case, it was actually true. Right. right. Um, <laughs> I had to walk six miles to work. I mean, <laughs> not work school, yeah. but I think it's a couple things. The model minority myth is absolutely founded in white supremacy. And it is very much like the, you are the ideal minority. You guys are smart. You guys work hard. You provide all these services, etc." Let's keep it that way. And we will reward you. I think within our community, at least for my community and the community that I grew up in, we were taught that the world was fair. Yeah. And so it was a, hey, keep your head down, go to school, get good grades, and you will get a good job and you will be paid fairly and you will be recognized for your hard work because that's what we were sold, yeah. right? And that's what we... And that sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good, <laughs> like, right? Like if why wouldn't true, you that's the whole story. Why wouldn't like, you get mm-hmm. a better job if you got better grades? And why wouldn't you get paid more if you were better than everyone else or smarter than everyone else? Yeah. But I think the other thing is now there are more and more of us who are in the 1.5 to second generation to now even third generations who have lived here long enough to realize that the world is not fair. Yeah. And our parents and grandparents who worked so hard and sacrificed so much for us to have an education um, who my parents like put me through a very expensive school Mm -hmm. making no money. Mm. And, you know, and that's where we joke about uh, parents wanting us to be doctors and lawyers because it's a, (laughs) hey, this is a secure job. It's a trade we understand. And we know you'll make lots of money. Yeah, And so many of us, go through that cycle of, hey, I'm going to do exactly what my parents said. And I'm going to go get a job and work hard. And they said it would pay off. And a lot of us are learning it doesn't pay off. Right. No, the world is not fair. Yeah. Actually, the person who was the valedictorian in the class didn't end up going to get the highest paying job and mm-hmm. didn't get the best opportunity. In fact, we've learned that the kid who had a connection at so-and so mm. because of their dad got the job, yeah, or so- and so got fifty thousand more in their entry level job salary because they knew to ask for it, yeah, or because their parent had some sort of connection or their buddy went to summer camp with them. yeah. And so I think, that is the other thing that we're learning is and seeing across the board is that the world is not fair. And if it's not fair, then we all need to fight and we need to stand up and do something about it.
0: You just said so much there that I want to respond to. Um, do you talk to your parents at all now about, do you ask them anything about like, everything you talked about like do they understand the concept of model minority myth do they understand um I mean everyone knows with with stop Asian hate and over the last few years that Asians um you know we haven't been this like protected model minority by any means um so or I don't know do you have have you ever had conversations with your parents about this where they're like I was I mean I don't I have not had conversations with my parents about a lot of
1: this. They're still in the States? They are. Yeah. Part of it is while I speak Korean, I'm not the most You don't have like the craziest vocabulary. I'm not the most sophisticated.
0: Like I would never Can you understand the news? I can understand
1: the news mostly. I cannot understand Korean news. Mostly. (laughs) But I would never negotiate a business deal. Yeah. I would never talk about race theory. Right. Be, it, anything Should like that. Did you speak to them in Korean primarily? I do. Okay. I do speak to my parents in Korean. But I think to have those kinds of complex conversations, yeah. there's nuance. Yeah. There is words matter. And I think part of it is one comfort, but two, just the embarrassment of like not being able to say certain words or not not knowing how to communicate it. The other thing is their frame of race is very different. Even though they've been here 40 years, it's just the, it's, it's just different. Yeah. And the other thing too, is what I've had to really come to understand about my parents. I've, I've learned a lot about what, where they're coming from. I think growing up, I was really mad that like, they don't understand that it's different for me. And I was, I, I think my brother and I both resented the fact that they didn't get what life was like for us. Yeah. And if anything, through the years I've learned, oh, I don't understand what life is like for them. Yeah. And so I've done a lot of work and educating myself of like, yo, your parents, came after war. Yeah, yeah. Um, They literally could not eat. They were told that their race was inferior. They were beaten. They were stolen from. They were slaves. Yeah. Um, And so when we're over here crying about, I can't get a better job because (laughs) of this. I feel like a brat. Yeah. Yeah. I really do. Or... I want this much more money at my job, blah, blah, blah. And it's not fair, you know, or, um, I think if anything, it's just more of a realization that being able to have these kinds of conversations are also a privilege.
0: And, yeah, totally. And, and that's like, thanks to our parents for set, setting it, setting us up the way they, they did. And they just, they just, it's not that they don't
1: want to learn these things. I think for them it was, their whole lives have been about survival. Yeah. Our parents' generation has been and our and the generations before have been about survival. And we are the first generation that didn't have to worry about survival. Yeah. We're looking to thrive, yeah. right? We're looking yeah. to thrive. Yeah. We're looking to like have a summer house. We're looking to have an apartment with giant windows. <laughs> you know, my parents and my grandparents were worried about food on the table. Sure. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And so, I think it's not about again. It's not so much about like oh, it's a conversation that I'm uncomfortable with. My parents understand racism. Yeah, they have had people hate on them, judge them because of what they look like and because of the fact that they could not speak English or the fact that they had blue collar jobs and provide a service. But I think they also just come from a place of. This is what I have to do yeah. to survive yeah. and provide for my family.
0: Yeah. As far as like these conversations, i um, just taking it outside of um, within our families. Do you remember Lucky Lee's the story about Lucky Lee's? I do not. It was the restaurant opened in 2018 in Soho by uh, like a kind of Insta influencer type woman uh, a white woman and um and she marketed it as um chinese food but clean do you <gasps> remember this i think i it was covered in the new york it was covered yes. in the new york times okay. and um there was outrage because mm-hmm. as her chef yeah and um you know she had the typical i think it was like Chinese food that won't make you bloated Chinese food, but good for you Chinese food. But like, you won't fall asleep. You won't fall asleep from having such heavy stomachs, like, you know, all that stuff. And she had the typical stereotypical, um, like decor of like chopsticks and bamboo and, and like obviously Chinese people, but I too, just by proximity of the Asian, you know, connection was just like, I couldn't believe it. So there, that's why it made it into the New York times. And I was so angry. I had so much anger and cause it just was like, it just brought back all the things that happened that were similar that I just have not talked about. Right. But I found it really interesting because a, mo- a lot of people couldn't relate. A lot of white, like my husband's white. Um, he, he could like, kind of, he could see it meant a lot to me and he could hear just, I mean, he could be like, Oh yeah, that's fucked up. But like, obviously he's not going to share in like the outrage, which is fair, but my own like friends, fellow Asian Americans, I would say like half of them were like, who cares? They were like, what they, one, one friend was like, well, You cook Italian food, right? Right? You're not Italian. So are you saying this woman can only make food, like only open a restaurant that's like of her exact like cultural heritage? And I don't, I just was like, I'm shocked. It's, (laughs) It's the fact, it's not that you can't cook Asian
1: food. It's if I wanted to open an Italian restaurant, I'm sure people would be fine with it. I do, I do agree that there is a bit of sensitivity nowadays where we've now completely... Um, erased all freedoms for us to explore different cultures. But in that particular case, the woman used the word clean. Yes. Which insinuates that the opposite is dirty. And that is what people have the issue with, is that there's... And David Chang, you know, the the head chef or the founder of Momofuku is actually a very big advocate for, like, food rights. Yeah. And that Asian food in particular for some reason is viewed as being dirty, mm-hmm. unhygienic. Oh, you're cooking with foreign meats. Mm-hmm. Um, remember at one time, everyone thought COVID was started because of Asian people eating rats or something, yeah. or not rats, bats, bats. Yeah. bats excuse me. Um, there is a long-standing history of racism when it comes to Asian food. Yeah. So that is why Uh, For those who do not understand why that was a big deal, that is why it's a big deal. I also remember a story a few years ago. I forget where in the South that this restaurant chain was, or not chain, restaurant was started, but there was an Asian restaurant called Yellow Fever that opened. Oh, wow. And there was outrage about that restaurant. And similar to your story, there was mixed feedback of like, what's the big deal? The big deal (laughs) is... The (laughs) oversexualization of Asian
0: women.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway,
0: I forgot about Lucky Lees. Yeah, I uh, that actually made me write my first piece on racism, and it took me a year to post. I just posted it on Medium, Mm -hmm. but um, it took me a year to muster the courage to do it because I was so afraid. I'm like, if my own Asian American friends aren't seeing this like I am, I'm just, I just like the potential invalidation that would follow. And then also feeling like the question of racism against Asians, at least the way I've seen it, I felt like because there's worse manifestations of racism to other groups in our country, in the world, but specifically our country, I felt like, Oh, who am I to complain? You know, who am I to talk about it? But I knew that was wrong thinking, you know? I'm like, obviously the last few years have really proven that there is racism that is dangerous, like, um, to Asians as well. And I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be like, the individual black person they may that may not agree that there's, that black people are worse off in our country. But as a whole, I feel like, I imagine in black communities, they're on the same page. And I feel like as Asians, it's only after the last few years that maybe we're more on the same page. And I think there's something particular with the conversations I've had, but the violence against our elderly has been like so outrageous and disgusting that like, it's like woken up, woken us up, right? Like, I mean, I'm glad that we, I'm glad that that's happened. And at me, especially raising children, like I talk about it all the time because we didn't have that. And I hope that the more it is just in like, just like we accept that this is the way it is, then we can actually come up with solutions, reparations or, or whatever. The thing that I've had as a
1: challenge is, I work in an industry, and I think a lot of us feel this way, um, where the world in corporate America is very white and black. And the world has just now started to accept black people integrating into the workplace, going into schools, et cetera, et cetera. And now here come the Asian people and the Latinos and the indigenous people, we gotta make room for them too. But in my particular industry, when it comes to music, a lot of it is rooted in black music. Right. But pop music is viewed as like the white music. Right. And so for me, someone who is supposed to work in this field and be an expert in these areas and just be an expert in culture, because music is culture, I am neither white nor black. Right. And... It was never an issue for me when I was starting off in the business. I was aware that my workplace was very white when I started. Um, I was the only female. I was the only person of color. I was very aware of it. Is that just like in your department? No, just in my company. Wow. And I remember sitting at a table of just like, man, I am the only female in here. I'm the only non-white person. And I'm the only non-Jew. Like, I was like, huh. Yeah. Wow. A lot of boxes that I check. Yeah. Um, I was also just not as aware back then, but even at that point I was like, there's something wrong here. (laughs) I don't fit in. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I went to a different company where a lot of the employees were black. Mm -hmm. And just even growing up, by the way, I, in school, because there was only a couple Asian kids, like, the kids who accepted me and always welcomed me were the black kids. Yeah. And they were always like, come sit with us. Yeah. They never made fun of my food. They yeah. were just always like, what's that?
0: Yeah. Um, but they were never like, that's disgusting. Right. Why are you eating yeah. worms? The white kids were, the white <laughs> kids were, were like, "What does that? smell? Um, what is that kimchi that I now eat? Because it, of all it's full, <laughs> that, that's probiotic a, that, value. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah.
1: But so as an adult now, I think of, My experience and my value as a marketer is not as understood because I am not white nor black. Yeah. And so if you leave it in in the marketing space, right, our job is to understand the consumer, their behaviors, how we reach them, et cetera, what we think that their likes are, what they would potentially like, et cetera. We don't count a lot of times mm. and it's not just in my industry. We don't count a lot in life. Mm. We don't. Yeah. And so it's usually, it's usually like, Hey, do you like this or that? Oh, and then the Asian people and the indigenous, those man blah, 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 are all over here. Yeah. Um, and so it's something I've had to navigate in my almost 20 year career and figuring out like, cool, I I'm not going to be the head of black music um, and the expert in hip hop and R&B, even though I love that genre. Yeah, you know, but I'm not white either. For me, I've been able to do a sort of a hybrid of both, and now I do run the pop rock marketing team at my uh, at Atlantic. And so I have this wonderful privilege of doing that as an Asian American woman mm. um, in this business. And there are very, very few Asian American yeah. executives in my industry. Yeah. But there are more and more of us coming up and wanting to be in this industry. And I just happen to be one of the few that have been lucky to get to this position. Yeah, I always joke that if I left it to the marketing metrics... No one would ever market to me because they would just assume that I only like k pop right <laughs> for Americans k pop only broke onto the scene just a few years yeah. ago, yeah. so what were we listening to before right? Um. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. so I just like to point out to people like that we are not a monolith, like n- people don't fit in boxes. you know, everyone shops at Target, white or black or Asian or purple. Right? Yeah. like we all like pop music. we like hip-hop we love jazz or whatever electronic all those things that are predominantly uh associated with one race or another
0: what do you make of the k-pop phenomenon as of the last few years i never thought that i would live to see a day where k-pop Same. and korean culture
1: was so mainstream
0: i didn't even believe it honestly when it when bts first came mm-hmm. on the scene i was like oh whatever it might be a because i loved K-pop from, in high school for sure. I had so many CDs. I had like DJ Doc and H-O-T. H-O-T! Yes, I was gonna say those two. I I was like, I (laughs) had like the biggest crush and like, Mm -hmm. I just loved it and nobody outside of my family or, or I don't even think I had friends that were into it because I didn't really have that many Korean American friends growing up. You know, it wasn't something I'd share with people so I just thought I was like a weirdo for liking it. And so it's been like a total shock (laughs) that like, I'm like, white people like BTS? Like, I don't know their names. I'm not, I don't follow them. I I, I think it's amazing what they've done. I mean, for their art, artistry, but also for our culture. But I'm, I'm not like in the army, you know, like, and I still cannot believe that just like, it's incredible. It's so incredible. Again, I
1: never thought I would live to see the day where my culture was so beloved Mm. like I do remember growing up and the Latin explosion happened Mm. and all these Spanish-speaking artists broke out into the scene and it was mainstream and I remember even thinking as a as a teenager slash young adult thinking I I wish this would happen with Asian culture. I wish this would happen, but it's never gonna happen. Yeah. And like it felt totally impossible. It just, it just yeah. felt totally impossible yeah. because I was like, well, of course J-Lo broke out into the scene. She looks like your your white girlfriend. Yeah. And,
0: and there's yeah, there's no way to make Asian people she, look white. Like yeah. a full Asian person. And she
1: grew up in the Bronx and she's a New Yorker and she's this. Yeah. And then Daddy Yankee, Daddy Yankee came out. And he speaks English and all these things. And I was like, who in our Asian artist is gonna come over and do this, and then BTS broke out onto the scene, and they were singing in Korean. I wasn't in the army then. I'm in the army now. Army. I love <laughs> BTS. Yeah, um, but I feel like I'm a late um, army joiner. But the other thing is, like the food and the explosion of Korean food, our culture, our K dramas, and at the end of the day, I'm just glad the moment's here. Yeah, I love it. Just kudos to this young generation who is so who is so welcoming and yeah. who is so just much more fluid and open to other cultures and experiences yeah. and taking it in as their own like that The BTS explosion, the K-pop, and the Asian explosion right now is all due to our young kids. Totally. Our young kids loving anime, loving K-dramas, not understanding the language, but wanting to learn, talking to their friends, going to H-Mart, trying different foods, sharing on social media their experiences and how wonderful it is and being open to it. Yeah. Because I'm not going to say any of it was better because, you know, that same kimchi And the same raw marinated crab that we've been eating for years has been there for years. And for some reason, because of TikTok and social media, it has become trendy. It's, it's become trendy and yeah. now everyone, you can't find single, like you can't find raw marinated crab anywhere right now. <laughs> you can't find, everyone wants my mom's kimchi recipe. Right. Like they want to know Whole, if I Whole make Foods kimchi at like, home.
0: Whole Foods has like eight kinds of kimchi. Don't buy your types. kimchi from Whole Foods. Please. <laughs> but I'm just But I'm just saying as like I'm a point I'm just telling like the listeners, <laughs> don't buy your kimchi from Whole Foods or
1: your deli or bodega. I'm sure worst case scenario, it's fine.
0: Just go to H Mart in New York there's what three of them yeah you can yeah. go to h-mart find yourself an asian store um i have white friends that make their own kimchi and i've never made my own i've kimchi. never made my own kimchi <laughs> but you know
1: what i always buy mine from h-mart
0: oh um going back to your comment about the young generation yeah i mean and that's what gives me so much hope is seeing the racism is still there right we are still a country built on white supremacy. I see it play out in my in the school environments. And even like socially there's with my kid. Anyway, it's not in any sort of like scary way, but I see there, I see the inequity. Um, and also they have kimchi at their cafeteria and wow. yeah. And, um, my son comes, he actually came home and he asked me, um, if he could put kimchi on tacos one Aww. night, cause I make, I make tacos as one of my, probably every week I make, I make a taco recipe. And I was like, what Like, what are you really? Like you want, where are you learning this? And he was like, what are you talking about? I have kimchi every day at school. Like he'd been doing that for months and just never talked about it. Cause it wasn't weird to him you know, it was just normal. Like, he's like, he gets kimchi and he gets pickles. It's just like, and then we started talking about it and, um, he just couldn't process why I would have this like chip on my shoulder about eating kimchi in public in school. And when I explained it to him, you know, he was like, well, those people are obviously idiots. Like they clearly haven't tasted how delicious it is, you know, like going back to when I was a kid and like, it's so awesome to see that. And it's it's like the, the, his peers, Asian or white or, you know, of all backgrounds um, are also eating it. They just, it's normal. And that is a testament to the younger generation, but also the parents that are raising them in a much more open-minded. And if, granted, we're in New York City, so we're going to be much more inclusive and much more aware than a lot of the world. Yeah, But it does give me so much hope that these are the kids that are going, that are inheriting Are you know, that are inheriting the world and hopefully where things will go from here. But a key thing is the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a big thing missing from our childhoods was the conversation with each other and with our parents. Because we get as kids, you look to your parents for information on how you should be seeing the world, how you should be taking this in. And if stuff isn't talked about, you have to fill in the blanks on your own and, that's not easy. Well, it's not it's not easy as an adult, but as a kid you're just like I don't know what's going on.
1: Yeah. Do you follow um she, her name's she says that her name is Susie on TikTok. Um it's spelled Suja. Okay. Um Sujia. Uh-huh. Um and so she's a lovely, I think she's she's a lovely Korean American woman out in California with a very sizable TikTok following. I might and follow
0: I might follow her. On, in, I don't use TikTok, but I might follow her on Instagram. I follow a couple like really, because okay. they all also have their accounts yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I love TikTok
1: now, but I can't, I'm scared. I mean, <laughs> I get it. I get why you're scared. There's a reason that algorithm is so good. However, she also shares a very similar experience where she was moved to tears because her son also was like, I want to take kimchi and all this stuff to school for lunch. And her experience is so, like, you were made fun of. All yeah. we, all you and I wanted was a ham and cheese sandwich. And ham a, and cheese, bologna. Yeah, Just bologna. give me bologna sandwich. I, all we <laughs> wanted was a bologna sandwich and a Capri Sun or, like, yeah. Lunchables. a lunchable yeah. pack, right? Horrible and the, processed food. And these kids are like, can you pack me kimbap and yeah. a sushi roll and also a side of kimchi with, like, you know... I think I saw this, actually, yeah. And so she yeah. was moved to tears yeah. that, you know, not only does her son ask for it, but her his classmates want to exchange yeah. and want to also share in the food. And, um, it's, it's a reminder that like, not only are these kids more open, but we we have to protect them from yeah. tainting them from yeah. our experiences. Totally, yeah. And it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful that the palates are just more expansive and exploratory now. And we just need to continue um, encouraging that because there are other cultures who don't feel seen and don't feel accepted. And maybe it's Indian food. Maybe it's Ethiopian food. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but... I love that these kids are so willing to just try, yeah.
0: And um, and if they don't like it, they don't like it, and it's okay. Yeah, but like that's the thing, though. It's the trying before the judging or making fun of. Where I don't think anyone ever like tasted whatever the foods I had at school that they were making fun of. Um, But I think it's also the access
1: that we have now to get these foods like kim which is seaweed snacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah never did i think kim would be sold at costco in as, these a little, yeah, as, as, well, as a superfood yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. when you go to whole foods and they're in these really like cute packages
0: that's not how you and i grew <laughs> up with kim <keem. laughs> yeah um <laughs> you couldn't even really get the good kind of kim unless like you went here. to korea yeah you'd have to have when someone visited like a suitcase was always food like yeah. snacks right not even snacks sometimes raw ingredients would come in suitcases Oh, I know one thing. I wanted to ask, just like I guess because you are um, a working professional, um, and I'm curious about how you find your balance in life. What self care might mean to you? Just we can all get very focused on like what we want to accomplish, mm-hmm. but like where where does like you taking care of yourself fit into that?
1: Self care at one point to me meant exercise spa days mm-hmm. you know a manicure those types of things that are very s- on the surface level and it's still it's still part of my self-care routine um I love a good you know skincare routine I love do you do
0: the Korean skincare stuff it's mixed like um, 10 steps every I day do 10 <laughs> steps I'm very
1: simple I'm really like a Cetaphil slash CeraVe person right, with me too combined with a Korean moisturizer and, you know, just one, yeah. one or two serums. So I like to keep it really simple, but I think as I've grown in my career and become busier and a lot is expected of me and demanded, and there are lots of people um, around me, I have learned that self-care is also about protecting my energy mm-hmm. and my peace of mind And there are a couple of things that I do now that, you know, some people may not consider self-care, self-care, but it's self-care for me. And those things are turning on my do not disturb button Mm -hmm. at 11 o'clock at night. I think that's pretty acceptable. Like I know (laughs) some people would be like, of course you would turn it on at 11. (laughs) No, but when music comes out at midnight, you know, um, on Fridays, um, you know, I think, the 11 o'clock do not disturb forces me to put my phone down and not look at emails at 11 yeah. to not look at social media at 11. Um, I'm not always successful at it. If anything, <laughs> it's just like a ignore, right. <laughs> um, but it's there because it makes me stop and think I am incredibly protective of my nights and weekends. I do a lot of shows and concerts, um, nights and weekends, but then the nights and weekends that I have off, I am intentional about not
0: overbooking yeah and what do you do then do you just stay home like i don't want to tell people what i'm doing <laughs> because then they'll know where what advice from people what do you, you know like or you could just like be spontaneous i guess on those days and do whatever you feel like i purposely leave days open i try now
1: like if i have saturdays and sundays open I'm not allowed to do something Saturday and Sunday. Right. That's good. There is a reason, like not just from a faith level of the Sabbath, but like we all need a day to unplug. Yeah. And I go, I think of my parents often where my parents didn't have two days off a week. My parents only had one. And that one day was usually filled with a half day of church, which is kind of like work. (laughs) Um, And so I recognize, again, the privilege of having two days off in a week because there are a lot of people who cannot afford to take a a, a day off. But I leave it open. And usually that open time is for me to walk with my dog. Um, there's something incredibly therapeutic about just walking. Um, and I'm a runner and I love to run and you know, that's my thing from like a cardiovascular exercise standpoint, but there's something about silence and I don't even listen to a podcast or anything. Like I just walk in silence and I look at this fluffy little dog who looks at me happy. (laughs) And I know people think that I'm a crazy dog mom, but I don't care, but that's my time. Yeah. But I also create that time or leave that time open for just like organizing my home. And I know these sound like really boring adult things, but I do see them as forms of self care to make sure that my home is right. And my space is right because your space Is tied to your energy. Totally. I used to be that person again in my twenties and early thirties. I would just pack like, okay, I'll do coffee with this person, and then at dinner time, why Why did we do do that? that? (laughs) And maybe it was COVID. Maybe being locked down, we learned how to take better care of ourselves, and we learned that we are all burnt out and overwhelmed. So I do think that there is a little bit of. Do you think we also were like frightened about what other people would think? (laughs) Yeah, and so. I think now there have been times where people have said, Hey, do you want to do blah, 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 blah. And there have been times where I have absolutely said, thank you so much for the invitation. I so appreciate you thinking of me, but I really need to take a day for myself because my Monday through Friday, sometimes through the weekend is devoted to other people. And those other people are not just clients and bosses and all that stuff, but my husband, um, you know, my family, checking in on my family and my friends, like I need a day for me. Yeah. You see
0: to unplug from everybody in your life. Really? I just, and I think
1: I can only give to other people and I can only be great at my job and I can only be a better wife and a daughter and a sister and friend. If I create the time to make me happy. Yeah. Because 90% of our lives, or even more than that, are devoted to making other people
0: happy. Yeah. Do you think this is just something you realize as you've gotten older as well? Like, just, I feel like when we're younger, we just, we don't know, and we burn ourselves out just on living, and then you're like, oh, wait. I think
1: part of it is age, and part of it is the unpacking of the cultural implications of what Mm. self-care means. Yeah. Again, we didn't grow up in a culture and a family that knew what self-care was it was always about work and survival again the luxury of it exactly and so but now um it's it's part of my journey of reconciling the the immigrant side of me plus the American side of me plus the the grown-up side of me all those things and
0: just just making sure I'm gonna be okay yeah you know yeah I think that's a perfect way to end our chat here. (laughs) Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Voices on the Side is produced by Just Breathe Project. Please tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support so we can keep bringing you these amazing conversations.